little focus upon us as a, as a chosen people, as God's people, as a church, even as a nation. Before we begin, let me pray one more time. Father, we ask that you would teach us now. Fill me with your spirit, Lord, as I speak. Cause me to speak your words and your truths. Father, we pray your spirit would work in the hearts of your people and cause them to hear that which you wish them to hear. Lord, may you bless and minister to each one here according to their needs, according to the circumstances. Father, may they find the same answer that is on the solid rock of Christ that we need to stand. That we would put our trust in him, trust in you, so that we will not be shaken no matter the circumstances of our lives. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, today, as you many of you are probably aware, is September 11th, 2016. And perhaps you remember 15 years ago. Uh, it's a, Boy, it's hard to imagine. It's 15 years already. That's, uh, boy, that's, uh, that's a good amount of time. But 15 years ago, our nation was shaken by the terrorist attacks in, uh, uh, on 9-11, primarily in New York City. And if you recall that time, especially the days after the tax, it was a moment that uh, truly unified our nation. We came together as a nation, as one nation. We immediately, pretty quick, swiftly took action against our enemies that threatened us. We, as a nation, mourned the tragic loss of lives. And we, as a nation, prayed to God to heal our land. It was a time, at least from in my brief life, at least for what I've known, I can imagine maybe if you live longer and you've been through other uh, tragic events in our nation's history, but there was probably no, there's no other moment in my recollection of American history where our nation was as unified as it was in those days and those, those months and years after 9-11. But here we are 15 years later on this anniversary and... Doubtless, at least for those of us that lived through it, the memory of the tragedy still remains. But if you look at our nation, we look at our nation around and we look at our, uh, our, our land, the unity that we had is gone. Though the threat of terrorism still remains. We find our nation divided, don't we, today? Seems like it's always been divided, even before 9-11. But today, it seems more divided. Maybe I'm just paying more attention to the world, to our land. We're divided along political lines that grow increasingly bitter. We're divided along the racial disparity that grow increasingly belligerent. We are divided along economic gaps that grow increasingly unbreachable. Now... We might ask ourselves, what is the reason for the divide? And I believe that uh, I'm, not a, I'm not a social scientist. I'm not a politician, so I, I don't have those kind of answers for you. I'm a theologian, 
is ultimately rooted in the fact that we as a nation have failed to recognize that we are a nation under God. Now, we are not the only nation under God. Every nation is a nation under God, whether we recognize it or not. We are all nations under a sovereign authority, under a providential care, under his infinite knowledge and truth. But like most nations in our world, we reject God's authority. We reject his with the recognition of his providential care. We reject his truths in how we live. Our country is a, still a pretty mighty nation, a great country, a country known for freedom, a country that still many, countless millions of people still want to come to so that they might have a better life. But we are also a proud nation that has rejected our creator. We have rejected him from the public square. And we have rejected his eternal truths. We have rejected the reminder of those who went before us that in their wisdom they put on our the things that we would trust most, our, our money, that very phrase, in God we trust. How ironic. Quite frankly, we are no longer a nation under God, but we are a, a nation, if you will, over God. We are placed ourselves over God. We are now his judge. We have decided that we do not need him or whether we need him. We have placed our, ourselves to decide whether we need his truths or not, whether we'll live according to them or not. like criminals who think that they are above the law, so we have made ourselves above God. And so as a nation, it is not surprising when we see the divide and we see the, the, <clears throat> the disparity in our land, the injustice in our land, that, this is, that we should not be surprised. We are merely reaping the consequences of our rejection of, of the authority of God. And every nation will, not just this nation. Sadly, we are not the first nation to do so. And in our passage this morning, the nation of Israel, we find, was guilty of the same in Isaiah's day. That they rejected God's authority. They were no longer, they ceased to be a nation under God, but a nation that placed themselves over God. Above their even need for God. And God, in this passage, Isaiah 30 31, pronounces a woe upon Israel. We're in that section, 28 through 33, of the six woes upon Israel. Woes, uh, that is, that is the a exclamation of grief and sorrow because that is coming to, <clears throat> that is going to come upon Israel because of the choice that they made to not trust in God. Now, historically, they are a nation that is under the threat of attack. The threat of a Syrian attack. And I kind of just think, man, there, there's a lot of application even thinking how this passage applies to us today as a nation that is under the threat of always terrorist attack. But under the threat of a Syrian attack in those days, she turned away, Israel that is, from trusting God. And instead, she put her trust in her political alliance, her treaty with primarily one nation, the nation of Egypt, 
uh, really the alternative. If Assyria was the mightiest nation at, at the time, the second one would have been Egypt. Now, as we study this text today, I'm hopefully uh, you won't conclude that we, that America is God's chosen nation, like Israel was God's chosen nation. We're not. We're not. Israel's God's chosen nation. But we are here, we who are gathered here are, in a sense, a chosen people. We are the church of Jesus Christ. We are chosen by God. We are gathered together. And so as individuals who belong to the church, we can apply much of the lessons that we learn here. These are warnings for the people of God, for us as a body of Christ, as the church of Jesus Christ, whether in this local body or all the Christians around our nation. Will we be people who place ourselves under God's authority? Or will we be people who place ourselves over God? Woe upon the people of God that place themselves over God. May we learn today that what we need for our lives is not going to be found in man. Yes, we, we look to our politicians. Yes, we look to our leaders. Yes, we look to the economists, the medical doctors. We look to uh, those lawyers in our world who have much knowledge and wisdom and, and instruction that may be of use in, in guiding our land. But before we look to them, we look to God. We must look to God. We must put our trust in Him. We must seek Him first. So as we look at this passage this morning then, uh, it is a message that speaks to the nation of Israel. It divides into two woes. The outline's pretty clear. It's two woes upon the nation of Israel that warn us, the people of God today, of the danger of not trusting God. Now, I know most of us here would say we trust God. But how often do we say we trust God? But by our actions, so we don't. We can tell. Because when we trust God, we will find perfect peace. When we do not trust God, we find anxiety. We find dismay you find despair and that's what God's word says woe upon the people of God that place themselves above their need for God let's take a look at these two chapters then today and hopefully we'll just kind of draw this this principle out for us there's so many details in these two chapters as we've been going through uh, I just uh, <clears throat> uh, I can't help but think as we preach through the word I sometimes feel like as after my sermon you must have a hundred more questions about the text than, than, I, uh, than I could have explained. And there are, I have that many questions about the text that I don't have answers to. But hopefully we, we won't miss the big picture. There's always a big picture to uh, the text, the sermons. But that would cause us, uh, if you have questions, uh, feel free to come and ask me if you have questions. And, you know, I can just share with you uh, what I don't know. Uh, but maybe we have some answers too. Anyways. Well, if you look at chapters 30 and 31 today, we're going to find that they have a similar pattern. They have uh, parallel patterns. Both begin with a condemnation from God and then an offer of compassion from God. Condemnation from God and then compassion from God. 
uh, both chapters have a similar theme of warning Israel to not put their trust in Egypt, not put their trust in man, but to put their trust in God. Now, the major difference, if you just look at the two chapters kind of in your Bible, that chapter 30 is at least three times longer than chapter 31. And it's kind of interesting because the themes are very similar. They're almost identical. We wonder why, why does, why might there be the same thing mentioned in two straight chapters? And perhaps one was given a little bit earlier. These are, these take place in his, very real historical times. And, uh, chapter 30 might have been given earlier and under the threat of Assyria. And maybe chapter 31, uh, being briefer, uh, maybe it was given a little bit later. Maybe even when Hezekiah, uh, Jerusalem was completely, and Hezekiah were completely surrounded by Sennacherib. Maybe that came at that point as well. So, um, which making a more urgent response to God's word. But as we take a look then at chapter 30, we find the first woe against Israel that remind us of the danger of not trusting in God. And that is we find, woe to the nation that rebels against God. Woe upon us if we rebel, if we are God's people, we're God's nation, we're God's chosen ones, and we rebel against him. We overthrow, we cast away his authority. We look in verse 1 through 7 then, we read these words. Woe to the rebellious children, declares the Lord, who execute a plan but not mine, and make an alliance but not of my spirit, in order to add sin to sin, who proceed down to Egypt without consulting me to take refuge in the city of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore, the safety of Pharaoh will be your shame and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt your humiliation. For their princes are at Zoan and their ambassadors arrive at Hanes. Everyone will be ashamed because of a people who cannot profit them, who are not for help or profit, but for shame and also for reproach. The oracle concerning the beasts of the Negev. Through a land of distress and anguish, from where come lioness and lion, viper and flying serpent. They carry their riches on the backs of young donkeys, and their treasures on camels' humps, to a people who cannot profit them, even Egypt, whose help is vain and empty. Therefore, I have called her Rahab, who has been exterminated. We read here that Israel is condemned by God for her rebellion against him. It is the rebellion against God that we find here. He calls Israel a rebellious children. It reminds us, when you think of that term, many of you are parents, you who've had teens, you know rebellious children. I don't know if there's any teen that doesn't rebel in some way. And I can imagine just... Uh, how painful that would be when it's my turn. But anyways, rebellious children remind us of several things. First of all, that the fact that they're called children tell us that this nation has a, a relationship with God, a special relationship with God. It's not that they are rebellious and that they're enemies of God or they don't know God, but these are people who know God. They, they're his children. They're his sons. They're his daughters. But the fact, the sad, and what makes, and that makes this more painful because these children have all but dependent upon God. They've received so much of their life, their existence, their special place in the world because of God. But yet they are here condemned because they are, have rebelled. They've thrown away and disregarded their need for God. Instead of trusting God against the Assyrian threat, the nation had sought safety through an alliance with Egypt, we see. Yet 
Now, we would add that it's not necessarily wrong to have a plan when threatened. Under, threatened. Uh, even for us as a nation, we hope our, our military leaders, our, our generals out there, they have some plan or about to fight against terrorism. It's, it's good to plan. Uh, it's, it's sometimes even uh, helpful to make alliances. But the problem here with the plans and alliances that Israel made was that they were not of God. They were not mine, he says. They're not of my spirit. They weren't according to God's will for them. And see, for Israel to make an alliance with, with Egypt was not only a reflection that they didn't trust God, but it was actually a violation of God's commands. In the law, and particularly in Deuteronomy 17, verse 16, God had warned the nation, particularly warned the, warned the king of the nation, to never to turn back and lead the people of Israel back to Egypt. To go there to, to gain horses or to, for military help, for protection. It was a sin because God knew that when they would go back to Egypt, they would also depend upon their gods. Judah, of course, Israel, was more concerned about their own plans instead of God's plans. And so they disregarded God's word. And God warns them that such actions are going to lead to their shame, their reproach. That's why there's a woe. They're going to be ashamed. They're going to depend upon Egypt, but they're going to find that it's, that Egypt is of no help. There's a brief oracle given in verse 6 to 7 about the, the animals of the Negev. It's a picture of the, of the, these, an, these trains of animals that are being sent down uh, from, from Israel, from Judah, to Egypt, carrying tribute to the Egyptian leaders. And though they're carrying e- tribute to Egypt, God says their help is vain and empty. It's a vapor. It's, it looks like something, but it's, it's nothing that you can depend upon. And then, kind of interesting, just there at the end of verse 7, God calls Egypt Rahab who has been exterminated. And that's just, well, what does that mean? But uh, Rahab, if you kind of just, uh, look in some, uh, some of your, maybe some of your study notes will tell you that Rahab was actually was, was a name for a, a mythical sea monster. It's not talking about the, 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 you know, the, the person in the Bible, but a mythical sea monster in those days. Um, a monster, a, a, uh, something large, like a, maybe a, uh, some people think it was a hippo. Could have been a reference to a hippo, or uh, but and if you think about hippos, when you go to the zoo, we have our hippo at our zoo here. Uh, what are they doing? Nothing exactly. <laughs> they're just lying there. I mean, it's it's this huge animal. It's, the hippos are huge, and he's like, but they just most times they're lying. There. Sometimes they're playing with their ball or whatever, but most times they're just lying there. And this idea is that Egypt is like this huge animal, a monster, if you even will, but it's a monster that doesn't move. It may be scary, may look threatening, but it's harmless. It can't do anything for you. What use is having a, a, a monster in your back, in your you know back in your kind of in your you know at your back, and but doesn't move? Well, it looks good, but it, when the time comes to defense, when you need defense, it's not going to help. And that's what God says about Egypt: it's a monster that doesn't move. It's a Rahab that has been exterminated or been is still. Now, the problem, though, really isn't with Egypt itself, is it? It's not with the fact that they trust in Egypt, but with the people of God himself. The problem is really with them, with their, with their attitudes. And God then says in verse 8 to 11, read, read with me, Now go, write it on a tablet before them, and inscribe it on a scroll, that it may serve in time to come as a witness forever. For this is a rebellious people. 
God's going to say, document this, basically. This is a rebellious people, false sons, sons who refuse to listen to the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, you must not see visions, and to the prophets, you must not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us pleasant words, prophesy illusions. Get out of the way, turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. What a powerful condemnation this is against the people of God. They essentially... They are God's people, but they've rejected God's word. They didn't want to hear it anymore. They didn't want to listen to God's instruction. This doesn't make no sense. It's like, it's like Christians who don't follow Christ. Why are you Christian? You don't follow Christ. It's a Bible church that doesn't follow the Bible. It's the people of God who reject God's word. They instead, if you notice, they, they wanted to, their prophets to tickle their ears. They wanted the prophets to say politically correct things, things that wouldn't upset the society. They say, oh, say things that, that we like. Even tell us things that are illusions. Make up some myths. Just don't, don't upset the nation. Tell us things that are pleasant. They didn't want to hear any more about the holy ones authority over Israel. And that's what that phrase, Holy One of Israel, we see the, the whole emphasis on God's holiness throughout the, the book of Isaiah is, is constant and implies the Holy One that he is, has authority over the nation of Israel. It kind of reminds me of a quote, and, the, and just the, even this fact that they don't want to hear any more about God, it reminds me of a quote that I heard recently. It was attributed to Spurgeon. That is, if people don't like doctrine, give them more. You hear that? You guys heard that? That's a tribute to Spurgeon. And some people here would say, we don't want to, we don't like the Holy One of Israel. Don't, don't give us any more words about the Holy One of Israel. So what does God do? Verse 12, therefore thus says the Holy One of Israel. I love it. People who don't want to hear about the Holy One of Israel, they need to hear about the Holy One of Israel. They need to hear about God. That's, those are the people who especially need to hear about God even more. And we read in verse 12 then, Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, since you have rejected this word and have put your trust in oppression and guile and have relied on them, therefore, this iniquity will be to you like a breach about to fall, a bulge in a high wall whose collapse comes suddenly in an instant, whose collapse is like the smashing of a potter's jar, so ruthlessly shattered that it sure will not be found among its pieces to take fire from a hearth or to scoop water from a cistern. For thus the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, has said, In repentance and rest you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you were not willing. And you said, No, for we will flee on horses. Therefore you shall flee. And we will ride on swift horses. Therefore those who pursue you shall be swift. One thousand will flee at the threat of one man. You will flee at the threat of five until you are left as a flag on a mountaintop and as a signal on a hill. And just uh, briefly, Judah's rebellious rejection of God's word is going to lead, according to these verses, to their destruction. They're going to be shattered like a jar and collapse in an instant. And yet, although God offers to them, the key verse there in verse 15, offers to them repentance and rest. Repentance and rest. Turning away from sin and rest, that is, putting your trust, faith in God. You see here, the two sides of the coin of repentance and faith. 
God offers salvation to them if they would repent and believe and trust in him. But their unwillingness, they refuse to trust in him. They refuse to repent of their sins, lead to their eventual defeat and captivity according to God here. And although we find in these in these first uh, 17 verses this condemnation of Israel and Ju- Judah primarily, although we, Judah is unfaithful to God, God remains faithful to his people. I love it. You know, as a, and I think many of you are, as parents are probably will understand this. If, even if there are times when your children are, are disobedient to you time and time again, you don't ever just as a parent say, well, I'm not going to long, longer going to be, you know, love you as a parent. I'm still going to love you. Even though you may hurt me and not love me back. I've seen that of many of you. Thank you for your example. But God shows us this example. This is God at work in our lives. We see that in God's compassion. God's compassion. God shows compassion to his children even though they are rebellious. Verse 18 is a key verse in this passage. Therefore the Lord longs really literally it's waits god is waiting god like the like the father of the prodigal son if you can this is kind of a picture the lord longs to be gracious to you and therefore he waits on high to have compassion on you for the lord is a god of justice how blessed are all those who long for him see god patiently waits to show compassion to his people who who rebel when we rebel against God, when we turn away, it's, God is not angry with us. He's, oh, man, I'm, I'm going to strike you down. Well, he may discipline, the, discipline us out of love, but he also waits. He wants us to wait for us, our repentance and our turning back to him and so that he might show us his compassion and love. The, new, the kind of New Testament equivalent of this truth is found in Second Peter 3, 9. That the Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness but is patient toward you, not wanting any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. As we look back to verse 18 of chapter 30, notice the reason why God shows compassion to Israel. Why does he wait for them to show compassion? For the Lord is a God of justice. I find that surprising. Why does God wait to show compassion to you? Why is he... uh, longing to be gracious to you because he's a God of justice. Now, I know for most of us as Christians, when we explain God as a God of justice, we usually use in the context of, well, you know why God must punish sin? Because God is a God of justice. God is holy. That's why he must punish sin. But this verse is just encouraging because it says, you know why God must show compassion to us? Because he's a God of justice. Because God is just. He's going to do that which is always right. Always that which is fair. That's amazing. This is that's encouraging. That's wonderful. True that I'm encouraged by this. God's going to always do the right thing, and the right thing means that God's always going to keep His promises that He makes, and the promise that He makes to the nation of Israel, to He promised to save them, to redeem them, to cause them to, to bless them, and so that they will eventually be a nation that blesses the families of the ends of the earth. That's God, God's promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The, the many promises he makes to them in the law. And the many promises he makes make to them in the prophecies. That's why. Because of God's justice. Because he does which is right. 
he will keep his promises to his children. And how comforting that is for those of us who are a child of God. God's always going to do that which is right and just for you. He's going to keep his promises that he has made to you. You only need to wait for him to do so. His gracious compassion will be seen in, in three ways according to the rest of this, uh, the rest of this uh, passage. We see that when Israel turns back to the Lord and God shows compassion to them, he will teach them, according to verse 19 to 22. O people in Zion, inhabitant in Jerusalem, you will weep no longer. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When he hears it, he will answer you. Although the Lord has given you bread of privation and water of oppression, he, your teacher, will no longer hide himself, but your eyes will behold your teacher. Your ears will hear a, a word behind you. This is the way. Walk in it whenever you turn to the right or to the left. And you will defile your graven images overlaid with silver and your molten images plated with gold. You will scatter them as an impure thing and say to them, Be gone. God says here that if his people cry out to him, he will answer. That's just a wonderful promise of God that he answers the prayers of his saints. He hears them. He will answer them. In a, he may not answer them immediately, but he will answer them in his perfect timing. I love how this passage, this illustration or explanation, how God will even show them the way to walk. When you turn to the right or left, basically is when you, when you disobey, when you go off the path that God has for us. And God will say, you will hear him as a whispering, as a word behind you. This is the way. Walk in it. And we can think of that as the Holy Spirit, even New Testament, in light of the New Testament. That's what God does. Sometimes when we walk astray, when we turn to the right or left, God's Spirit, God's Spirit will convict us of sin. We'll say, no, that's wrong. Go this way. Go this way. And the response, and as he, as our teacher, the people of God will uh, respond and they will, they will throw away all their idols. They will throw away the, the things that they had followed to their shame. Idols, whether actual idols or even if we could think of idols in, with regards to uh, the nation of Israel at this time, the idol of trusting in Egypt, things that would cause them to not trust in God. They will, will cast them away. But God will teach them. Secondly, when, they, when the people of God turn back to him in, in, in repentance and faith, he will restore them. He will restore them. We see this in verse 23 and 26 to 26. Then he will give you rain for the seed which you will sow in the ground and bread from the yield of the ground and it will be rich and plenteous. On that day your livestock will graze in a roomy pasture. Also the oxen and donkeys which work the ground will eat salted fodder which has been winnowed with shovel and fork. On every lofty mountain and on every high hill there will be streams running with water on the day of the great slaughter. When the towers fall, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun. And the light of the sun will be seven times brighter, like the light of seven days. On the day the Lord binds up the fracture of his people and heals the bruise he has inflicted. Uh, even here we start getting a picture of what God will do, that God's going to restore uh, the, la- the land of Israel, the, their crops and, their, and uh, their economies, the things that they depend upon for food and for, uh, for clothing, for drink, for their life. God will heal, and it says at the end of verse 26, that he will, he will heal them of the bruises that he has afflicted upon them. All that God causes to, as, a, as a means, instrument of discipline for the nation of Israel because of the rebellion, God will heal one day. 
uh, there's mentioned here on that day or the day. And so even as we, again, we're reminding, as we go through these passages, we, we see a near kind of a near fulfillment of these things in, in the, in the attack, in the attacks of, from Assyria. But there's very likely here a far future ref, uh, reference to in the, in the day when the Lord comes and in the great, uh, in the great day of the Lord when the nations come against Israel that, and, and Israel turns in repentance, that God will restore them. Perhaps, uh, maybe, uh, perhaps even, uh, likely, unlikely a fulfillment of, that's reflected in the millennial kingdom. Kind of a side, I know, a lot of theological kind of stuff there, eschatological stuff, but just, I gotta mention that. Not only will God then teach them and He will restore them, but then He will also defend them. God will defend them, verse 27 through 33. Behold, the name of the Lord comes from a remote place. Burning is his anger and dense is his smoke. His lips are filled with indignation and his tongue is like a consuming fire. His breath is like an overflowing torrent which reaches to the neck to shake the nations back and forth in a sieve and to put in the jaws of the people, people's, the bridle which leads to ruin. You will have songs as in the night when you keep the festival and gladness of heart as when one marches to the sound of the flute to go to the mountain of the Lord, to the rock of Israel. And the Lord will cause his voice of authority to be heard and the sending of his arm to be seen in fierce anger and the flame of a consuming fire in cloudburst, downpour, and hailstones. For at the voice of the Lord, Assyria will be terrified when he strikes with the rod. And every blow of the rod of punishment which the Lord will lay on him will be with the music of tambourines and lyres. And in battles, brandishing weapons, he will fight them. For Topheth has long been ready Indeed, it has been prepared for the king. He has made it deep and large, a pyre of fire with plenty of wood. The breath of the Lord, like a torrent of brimstone, sets its fire. There's much said here, but the imagery is clear. There's, there's this in clear imagery of the burning, immense fire of anger of God. God's wrath is going to be poured out upon the enemies of Jerusalem and the enemies of Judah, the enemies of his people. And he's going to burn them up. He's going to come and, and as he comes and burns them up and consumes them and overcomes them with his power and authority, there's going to be... Celebration. There's going to be rejoicing among the people of God. Of course, uh, this uh, too has a far future reference. But by in verse 31, we see that the, it applies to, to the near reference of Assyria. God is going to cause Assyria to be terrified and shattered by his rod. There's an interesting kind of just name there. Topheth, mentioned in verse 33. And that's actually, if maybe your, your study knows may have, but it's another name for that valley that's uh, just outside of Jerusalem called, that's known as the Valley of Hinnom. You guys know the Valley of Hinnom also would then become known as Gehenna. It's a place where the trash, eventually in the New Testament, trash is thrown where there's always a constant fire burning. But it was a place in the Old Testament where fires would be set and people who worshipped the idol Moloch would cause their children to walk through the fires in this valley. And most, for the most majority of them, they would die. The sacrificing their children to the idol, as to appease the God, the false idol of Moloch. God says that Topheth, is, he applies it to, it says that death is going to be applied to the destruction of Assyria. They will be like kindling wood for the pyres that are going to be lit up as 
the many fires are lit up in Topheth. God's fire will set Assyria ablaze. God is going to defend his people from the nation of Israel. It's not going to be Egypt. It's going to be God who defends them. This chapter is, as we look at then, is a chapter of God's promise. God's, first of all, God's warning, but also then God's promise to Judah. Warning them not to put their trust in Egypt. Not to rebel against God and put their trust in Egypt. But to submit themselves again to the authority of God. And it's a lesson for us, encourages us, that we as a people of God, may we not be people who rebel against him. May we not uh, reject his principles, his word. Because if we do, we will find ourselves, like Israel, ashamed. I don't know, I mean, maybe in this room there are some of you, some of us, who have already rebelled. Maybe there is some sin in your life that you knowingly, you know that it's contrary to God's word, but you have embraced it. And it is an idol in your life. Maybe there's an adulterous relationship that you have. Maybe it's some sin, whether sexual. Maybe it's something you're doing at work where you're breaking some laws. Maybe it's in your relationships with your your uh, your uh, your spouse or your children or your parents. And you're in constant rebellion against God, though you know what God's word says, but you have rejected him. Rebelled against him. God says, Woe to the people of God who rebel against him. Do not continue to disregard God's word. God wants you to repent and rest in him. Now, as a child of God, do not believe the lie. That Satan would want to tell you that God hates you. I know I've thought of that many times when I've fallen into sin. No, God must hate me. But no, you are his children. You're his child. God loves you. And God waits, waits to show his compassion to you. So turn back to him. He waits to show him compassion and grace. Uh, if I had time, I, I think there'd be so much lessons for parents here that we could take, but we must continue. We find a second woe upon Israel uh, in the chapter 31. That is, woe to the nation that trusts in man. There's woe to the nation that rebels against God, but here's the other side of the coin. By rebelling against God, we often turn our trust to someone else, something else. And more often than not, we put our trust in man. And that's what Israel does here. God, and we see in this chapter the same pattern of God's condemnation followed by God's compassion. In verse 30, verses 1 to 5 of this chapter, we see God's condemnation. God's condemnation. Pardon me, it should be verse 1 to 3, God's condemnation. Woe, verse 1, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses and trust in chariots because there are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. But they do not look to the Holy One of Israel nor seek the Lord. Verse 1 points out Israel's problem, that they went to Egypt for military help. They went to Egypt because Egypt had uh, had horses, it had a cavalry, it had chariots. These were like, you know, uh, <clears throat> not only cavalry, cavalry with artillery, you know. Uh, <clears throat> they were the most advanced, in a sense, one of the most advanced weapons of warfare in that day. They were like, people like us today may go into... Uh, 
you know, hey, nuclear weapons are passe, man. It's like now it's, it's, it's getting those, those computer hackers who can get into the computer systems of governments so that with one flip of a switch, you can just bring the whole nation to their knees. That's, that's the, the high-tech weapons of today. And for Israel, they turned to Egypt. And the problem with that is that, not is that not necessarily they were looking for military help. They were. But the problem is they did not, the end of verse 1, they did not look to the Holy One of Israel. They didn't look to God. And this idea of look is to look to tr- and trust. When you're in danger, when, when a child is afraid, a lot of times they'll look to their parents. They'll look to their parents. They'll look to someone for help. They'll look to the mom. They're, or they'll, they don't they'll look to They'll just start running. Or dad. Mom, more, more than likely. But the fact is, Israel, should have, as a child, should have looked to God, but they didn't. They didn't even seek for him. They didn't even look, look to him for help. They didn't go to him at all. Instead, they quickly run to Egypt. And that is a re- reflection of their failure to trust in God. And what we see is that they relied upon, when you don't, when you don't trust in God, you end up relying upon man. Isaiah further elaborates on this in verse 2. Yet he also is wise and will bring disaster and does not retract his words, but will arise against the house of evildoers and against the help of the workers of iniquity. Uh, This phrase, he also is wise, implies maybe that Israel thought or Judah thought that Egypt is wise, that they need to go to the skillful, a skillful nation that can help them defend against the attacks of Assyria. But God also is wise. He also is skillful. They thought that they could avert disaster. They thought they could avert disaster by trusting in Egypt. But God says here, or Isaiah says that God will bring disaster. Could they avert the the disaster that comes from God? Much less they're trying to avert the disaster that comes from, from Assyria. And we see here that God essentially promises and that he will discipline his people. He'll keep his word to discipline him, his people, whenever they sin. God would discipline them. God would judge them. And we've kind of, we know that Assyria is part of that instrument. We also see that God will judge Egypt as well. Verse 3, we continue. The problem with trusting in Egypt, not God. Now the Egyptians are men and not God. The horses are flesh and not spirit. So the Lord will stretch out his hand, and he who helps will stumble, and he who is helped will fall, and all of them will come to an end together. The problem with relying on the Egyptians is that they are simply men. When you're ultimately trusting in man, that is our problem, because man is not God. Man's not even close. We should put our trust in God, who is all-powerful and almighty, who is the Holy One, not man. The Egyptians and their horses are, are flesh. They're human beings. They're, they're like you and me. They're finite, limited. We cannot be everywhere. We cannot do everything. We don't know everything. But God does. Egyptians cannot resist God's power. God would cause Egypt to stumble. Historically, in kind of light of the, the historical situation, when Assyria does come, to attack uh, and to besiege um, uh, Jerusalem. Egypt never comes. No tribute is sent. Egypt, uh, as actually during uh, the earlier 
um, oracles of judgment upon the nations. Uh, Egypt didn't even go to help the other nations uh, uh, the, uh, surrounding them. Here, by the, this time, Egypt itself had already been subdued by Assyria. And so they fail, and they, aren't, they do not come to help uh, Jerusalem. So they are, they are exactly what God says. They're, they're helpless. They're, they're, uh, Israel finds himself ashamed. Although Judah did not trust in God, we again, once again, find that God remains faithful to his people. God's faithful to his people. God's faithful to his promises. And we see God's compassion in verses 4 through 9. For thus says the Lord to me, as the lion or the young lion growls over his prey or against, against which a band of shepherds is called out, and he will not be terrified at their voice nor disturbed at their noise, so will the Lord of hosts come down to wage war on Mount Zion on an, on, and on its hill. Like flying birds, so the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it. He will pass over and rescue it. Verse 4 to 5 pictures God as a, like a lion, like a, a lion that growls and defends his, his, his prey. He's like defi- described as birds that fly down to defend and protect Jerusalem. You can kind of scare. It's like those little black birds, you know. Yeah, you're having one fly at you. Oh, man, you just, gotta, you just run for cover. Those, uh, I don't know what they're called, but they're scary. But God's is a flock of birds. Protecting Jerusalem, and he's like a lion that protects his prey. He's going to come down. God will protect Israel. That's his promise here in verses four and five. And so in verse four, verse six, he calls Judah. Then his light of his promise to protect them. He says he calls them to return to him, to return to him. Verse six: Return to him from whom you have deeply defected, O sons of Israel. For in that day, every man will cast away his silver idols and his gold idols, which your sinful hands have made for you as a sin. I love this, even God's compassion reflected here. God is not spiteful to reject his children. I can only imagine, uh, people tell me sometimes, that, oh, just wait till your children become teens. And I can just imagine, well, no, if they're just like me, oh, it's going to be nice, it's gonna be easy. No, <laughs> I can just imagine what it's going to be like when my children rebel against me and how angry I'll be and how upset I'll be. And can anybody relate as parents of teenagers? Yeah, I hope so. Uh, otherwise, uh, boy. Anyways, and I can imagine the temptation is which is like, man, I, I don't know. I hate them back. I don't know. I'm going to be angry. You're going to be angry at them. You want to get back at them in our sinfulness. I'm going to, well, I'm going to punish them. I'm going to, you know, in a. Well, you should lovingly punish them, discipline them, but, you know, maybe there'd be that temptation to return anger, uh, hate for, and anger or uh, bitterness towards their, them, but not with God. God responds to our rebellion with compassion, even though we've deeply defected from Him. The, idea, the word defected is an interesting word. Is we turn away. We've, we've gone apostate from him. We've completely cast him off. We've, we've basically said, no, you're not our, my dad. No, I, you're not my mom. I hate you. We've deeply defected from him, O sons of Israel. But God says, return. He's like the father of the prodigal son. I love it. God is never spiteful to reject his children. He always calls his children to return to him. Later on in Isaiah 55 or 7, we're going to read these beautiful words. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him. And let him return to our God for he will abundantly pardon. 
no matter how great your sins may be, no matter how deep they are, no matter how deeply defected you have and turned away from God, God compassionately welcomes you back. He calls you to repent, to turn back to Him. And really, this is not just true of when God shows compassion to us as His children, but this is what happens to all of us even at the moment of salvation, doesn't He? God offers compassion. God calls everyone, whoever will hear His word, to repent and turn back to Him, to turn away from your sin and turn to Him in faith. Because God sent his son, Christ, to die for your sins. To die for all our sins. But he calls, in order for you to be saved, you must repent and return. And put your faith and trust in him. Return and rest in him. Repentance will lead to a radical change. And we see in verse 7 that one, that they will mean casting away their idols. And then in the last two verses of 8 and 9, we re- read about how God will deliver Judah from Assyria. A prophecy. And the Assyrian will fall by a sword, not of man. And a sword, not of man, will devour him. So he will not escape the sword. And his young men will become forced laborers. His rock will pass away because of panic. And his princes will be terrified at the standard declares the Lord whose fire is in Zion and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. It's just kind of neat to even think about these two verses are complete, are perfectly fulfilled uh, in the days of King Hezekiah and when King Sennacherib of Assyria comes and assaults and, it, and besieges Jerusalem. And they're surrounded by Sennacherib and his army. And Jerusalem is about to, is, would inevitably fall to this besieging army. But we, we later we'll find in Isaiah 37, verse 36 and 37, how God delivers Jerusalem from the siege of Assyria. We, we, we find there that the angel Lord, without Jerusalem raising their sword, not a single sword is lifted up, but the angel Lord goes out and strikes 185,000 of the Assyrians while they camped. Basically, they pitch their tents. They're camping. They're, they're just kind of resting and recuperating, waiting for the basically the, the people of Jerusalem to starve themselves to death. But God goes out and he strikes them down, 185 down. They wake up in the morning. They find everybody dead. And Sennacherib, his army is pretty much defeated, is desolated. And so Sennacherib, with his tail behind his legs, in between his legs, goes back home to Assyria. And I didn't put it here, but verse 38, we'll find out that... Um, he will be, he will be basically assassinated by his own sons with a sword. And uh, his sons his, will flee. His uh, two, his two, two older sons will will flee in terror, and then one of his sons will take his place. Sennacherib, basically, Sennacherib Assyria. The what happens to them is completely is. Is prophesied right here. We find it reflected in Isaiah 37. God promises to deliver Israel. And he will deliver. And he does deliver. And that's uh, just encouragement for the people of God today. To know that God will deliver. God will keep his promise. Just as a application kind of truth for us. 
Just as it was foolish, you kind of think about Israel, it was foolish for them to put their trust in man and not in God. We'll do the same things in many ways. We, we often look to uh, man for help first. We, we, often, we don't turn to God until it's kind of a little, when we're completely desperate. And that's usually when we turn to God. And when we, we don't know what to do, we, we go ask maybe our, some lawyer. We have some medical condition, we, we go see a doctor. Uh, when we have some, you know, problems with the house, we, you know, you mean your, your sewage line, you, you go look for a plumber. You know, even simple things like that. You go look for help. You, need, you don't know your, your schoolwork. We, we go find a tutor. You know, it's very natural. We, we just look to man first. Not necessarily wrong in, in looking to man. But God wants us as a people of God to look to him first. To trust him first. God, even the smallest of things, God wants us to learn to depend upon him first and foremost. And when we put our trust in him first, We'll find that he is sufficient. He will, he will bring along other people, men and women, who can help us. But our trust must be in God and God alone. God is honored in that. God is glorified when we, as his children, trust in him, rely on him, depend upon him. As, as Simply as conclusion then, let us not rebel against God and trust in man. Let us submit ourselves under God and trust in him. Now, and if we do that, and if enough Christians do this, perhaps if God is willing, if God wills, that he may use us as his people to change our nation. That our nation might be a nation under God. Because it's not a it's not a common enemy that unifies our nation. Nations enemies come and go. We still have the same enemies. Terrorists still at large. We're just as divided. We disagree about how to go about fighting terror. What unifies on the and people, what unifies when unifies any amount of group of people, when unifies any nation, it's going to be a nation that recognizes that God is God, that God is over them, and that we need to trust in him. Let us be people who do that. Let's pray for our nation. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this passage. We first and thank you for this nation that you have caused us and to be a part of as citizens of it. Lord, we today especially are soberly mindful of the tragedy of the terror attacks of 9-11. Lord, our, you know our, our, our nation continues to fight against terror. But it seems to be that we are also fighting ourselves. And Lord, it's because we've forgotten that we are a nation under you. Lord, help us as a nation to to seek your authority. To not be afraid to look to your truths for the answers. Father, also we pray as individuals of this nation, help us each and first and foremost to 
be people who put our trust in you. Help us, Lord, to not do that which is natural in a sense. To look to man first. But Lord, as your children, help us to be like like when we were little kids. That we would run to our mom and dad whenever we had need. Help us, Father, to be like that. To run to you whenever we have need. And trusting in you, in your perfect timing, to deliver, to protect, to teach, to lead. To deliver us in accordance with your word. Thank you, God, for being the compassionate, gracious God that you are. Thank you, Lord, that even though we sin, even though we turn away and rebel, that you constantly wait for us. And Lord, if there's any here who have not, who have turned away, Lord, may you draw them back to yourself. Bring them back to a place where they would walk before you. And Lord, we pray that if anyone's here who does not yet know Jesus Christ as saving Lord, even now, do a work and cause them to see that they, their lives has been an act of rebellion against you and bring them to that place where they would repent of their sin and rest and trust in you and especially trust in Jesus Christ who died in their place for their sins. Lord, with these things we pray that you would be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. You're